Welcome to the Soul Sessions podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Anna Dwyer, and we are going to be talking about trauma, resilience, gratitude, and when we met Oprah. Anna joined the Queensland Police Service in 1997 and has worked in both operational and corporate roles all over Queensland. In 2015, Anna was promoted to Senior Sergeant in the Ethical Standards Command, where she holds a dual role in ensuring organisational policies are relevant, as well as managing a team who undertake vetting duties. Anna holds a Diploma of Public Safety, a Bachelor of Justice Studies and a Master of Philosophy where she sought to understand how social factors influence police in remote Indigenous communities. To expand her knowledge with regards to race relations, social identity and power, Anna is currently undertaking her PhD, where she is exploring how the police use of technology is affecting relationships with citizens in rural and urban areas. Anna is currently acting inspector in the Queensland Police Service, leading work to building relationships with First Nations and multicultural communities. Welcome, Anna. Thank you. Hello, Jodie. It's so nice to speak to you. You know, we've just obviously been having a little catch up beforehand and it's bringing back lots of wonderful memories, which we're going to talk about later. So if you're willing, would you share a little bit about yourself for our audience, uh, your personal professional background? Yes, I'm a police officer and yeah, can I just acknowledge that I'm on Turrbal and Yagara lands today yeah, thank in, you. In, in where I'm sitting. So yeah, thank you for that acknowledgement as well. Yes, yeah, so I'm a police officer. I've been in the Queensland Police since 1997. I guess as per my bio, I'm now leading work to build relationships with First Nations and multicultural communities. However, I've worked all over the state right up and um, so there's a town community on the very tip of the Australian mainland called Bamaga and it is the most far northern point on the Australian continent. So I've worked up up there at Bamaga, you know, right down through to Cairns, Mackay mm. and Coolamon. And now I'm in Brisbane. You just use the term First Nations and, I mean, I've always used the term Aboriginal or Indigenous. Is there a move towards saying First Nations or is that just another term that we can use? In Queensland, it was acknowledged in our constitution that Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islander peoples uh, are, in fact, First Nations of the continent in which we were on. And so within our workplace, we actually had feedback from people from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander backgrounds. And they were, um, you know, when we stood up this new unit, they were um, agreeable that we would call it First Nations. Yeah, okay. So that stemmed from feedback from community. Yeah, that's really important. And so, I mean, obviously we're going to be talking about trauma today. Would you be willing to share some of your personal story? Yeah, sure. 
I was born in Brisbane, but my parents are of Papua New Guinea background. So my story is, is my birth mother was 16 when she fell pregnant with me in Papua New Guinea. And at that time, you know, it was back in the 70s and it was, you know, frowned upon. They didn't like the guy that she fell pregnant to because he was from another village and they didn't like him. And then so she was sent to Australia to have me and then I was born here in Australia, but I was given to an auntie to raise because, you know, in Ireland, the families, we like to keep the family together. So even though I wasn't with my birth parents, I Mm. I still was within the family unit. That's quite common for for a lot of, as you say, like First Nations families. It's obviously preferable to go to family members, isn't it? Whereas obviously in Australia, we've had a history of forced removals and that not happening. Yeah, that's right. I know you've overcome quite a lot in your life. And then when we were talking before this, you sort of touched on that 2020 has been quite a challenging year, obviously, like for obvious reasons, coronavirus has certainly sort of impacted everyone really. But what's it been like for you? 2020, you know, I think I'm like the rest of the planet when I think that 2020 is just this thing that is completely unexplainable and affected us all in different ways. So my 2020 kicked off with the death of my sister. January 3, my husband and I, we were travelling from Europe and we were on our way back to Australia and we had just, uh, we were going to spend a few days in Hong Kong, you know, when my brother rang to say that it was a farming accident and the tractor rolled on us. So that kind of kicked off the tone for 2020 and then, you know, then we come into this pandemic, you know, just like how you, you described, you know, your podcast is in about trauma. Well, I guess mm. my year started off with a traumatic event. So. Gosh. And then obviously, you know, there's a lot of protests happening around Black Lives Matter. How's that all been for you? Oh, geez. Well, I guess, you know, if we come back to the theme of 2020 being this chaotic you know, I'd describe it as like a snow globe. It's like the world's just been shook up mm-hmm. and the snow hasn't all landed and, you know, all that calmness is not there. So Black Lives Matters probably was a year where racism was forced on the table, also in Australia. I mean, it's always on the table in America, but like in this big way mm-hmm. where people were forced to think about it because mm-hmm. it was up front and centre in such a, a dramatic way. And what I found really interesting was seeing people who I know and who I consider to be friends then moving into a position on it. And sometimes that position was not necessarily inclusive to how I think that my friends would think. It was more so people, you know, stating what they believed was right on the issue but not realising that perhaps they could have come across in a way that would appear racist to say myself looking on it onto Mm. it yeah look I noticed that even amongst therapists I've got to say one of the problems with psychotherapy training is that I've done social work and psychotherapy and at least in our social work training we do spend quite a significant amount of time on Aboriginal and Indigenous studies but a lot of counsellors and psychotherapists haven't even trained in in that sort of background so I noticed even with some therapists making some pretty you know like white lives matter sort of posts and stuff like that all lives matter and I mean, I don't know about maybe you'd like to say something about that. I mean, I might have caught you off guard with that. What does it mean to you when you see people posting things like that? I think as a nation, we have a really lack of insight as to the definition of racism. Yeah. Um, we have a real lack of insight as to the, to what racism has actually done and what it still continues to do to people today. 
So when I see things like White Lives Matters or All Lives Matters, it immediately says to me that people have a real lack of insight of actually what racism means, that it's a system that is tied to power and it is thinking that is tied to power. So if all the people in the room are a different race to me but they hold all the power, then they have so much ability to be able to influence and affect my life or people who may look like me. So there's a real lack of insight as to what it is, what it means and what it does to people especially in Australia. I was talking to this guy from my work who Mm. is uh, from South Africa and he grew up in South Africa. He grew up in apartheid. He knew what drinking taps he could use. He knew which toilets he could use. He knew which people he could go out with. And he said to me, the funny thing about, like he said, when you're in, when I was in South Africa at that time, he's saying that he knew, they knew what racism was. It was legislated. Mm. He said the funny thing was to come to Australia and then have a country that has really, like it just looks like it doesn't know what racism is and they don't realise their words or their language, how racist they can be. So oh, he thought that absolutely. that was quite an interesting observation. Well, we were busy watching South Africa back when and saying how awful they were without actually acknowledging that we also have that history and that racism still exists. So, yeah, I can totally see where he's coming from. And we did have a conversation and I want to make it very clear that I did ask you about this beforehand because I know from being in a lot of American groups, when someone white asks, well, what do we need to do, that the comment is often you need to go away and pay for resources. You need to um, do your own research on that and that we are to stop, I guess, using black people to do the hard work for us. But I did check in with you about asking these questions. So what advice, I guess, would you have for our white Australian and white overseas listeners? In, I mean, guess what would you like us to know? I can see where that viewpoint's coming from. And I guess if you're not clear about why that viewpoint is there, it's because I guess people of colour and black people and First Nations people have spent their whole lives navigating a system that was put in place by white people and have had to learn it, have had to understand the nuances, have to get through it and have to survive it. Then it's like return asking, well, you know what, I found all this out. Can you please now go and do your bit to find out how Mm -hmm. that system is now affecting someone like me? So basically maybe just putting the onus back onto people to learn so that perhaps that they will learn. I mean, I probably have a, a, like I'm probably not as hardline in that approach if Mm -hmm. someone does ask me and they genuinely want to know because they just sort of can't get those concepts. I probably come from a place where I will give you my time because if we walk away from the encounter and you know a bit more than what you did before it and it's then going to help you be more tolerant or um, accepting or you know then then that was that was an investment worth me making. Yeah thank you for that and I guess um, I mean my next question was like how how can we become um, better Black Lives Matters allies and I think that's exactly what you've just answered and to go away and to do our own work around this stuff and to find out as much as we can. Yeah, because I guess because if we just stripped it back to a system and if the system has benefited white people, then you're Mm. not causing yourself trauma by finding out about it. 
Whereas if the system has been against me, then it's stacked against me and I've got a lot of pain associated with it. So mm. it's about minimising my pain, but asking you to please understand it or see it. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you've got a significant trauma history yourself personally and professionally. And I know working in the helping professions myself that you will have suffered vicarious trauma working obviously in Indigenous communities, in the police force, working in the police force with sexism and racism. So there's lots of what we call big T's, which are single incident traumas. And there's lots of little T's, which is a complex trauma history as well. When you train to be a therapist, part of our training training is that we have to have clinical supervision, which means we have somewhere, um, I think initially we go every second week. And then once we're qualified for so many hours of therapy we do, we have to have one hour of clinical supervision. And from what I can gather from doctors, police, fire brigade, nurses, you guys don't really have that sort of clinical supervision like we do, even though you're experiencing and and seeing trauma all the time. And my sense is that these professions could really do with stepping up in that respect. I know there's other things they do, and and I think you can get sort of different sorts of counselling and stuff like that, but I've always kind of felt like doctors and people like that could do way better at getting I guess, professional support for all the the mental health side of things, I think. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, when I first joined the police back in 97, Mm. it was more a culture of, you know, you just go to these traumatic jobs where, you know, Mm. people have died or they've been badly injured or they've injured each other. and, And so there's this culture of you kind of laugh it off. It was nothing. And then, however, there has definitely been a shift, but that, that, that would be a shift because of probably broader society putting things on the table like, you know, when you've got your high-profile sports people or your uh, celebrity putting it on it. So then it has, you know, that conversation then has come into my workplace. You know, I probably just tried my own ways to kind of work through stuff. But, you know, last year I engaged a psychologist because I felt like I just couldn't work out answers myself. And Mm. it was absolutely the best thing I ever did. You know, what an interesting job that you've had to do, I guess. I know you were saying that, um, you know, you're doing like the quarantine is is part of history, you know, I mean, gosh knows what people are going to think of all this at some time in the future. But, um, and so you're not doing, you've finished your shifts doing that now? You're not in, in hotels yeah, and things so at I the did, moment? Yeah. So, so as I was going about, I, I, I was taking some photos because whether we think it's right or wrong, and, and we won't know, like, you know, whether this approach was the right approach, like it was, we're like we're in the middle of history playing out, you know, mm. the, the middle of a pandemic, the middle of the first time the world kind of shut down and in one go. And so I just thought, well, my little part is this, and grab some photos and make sense of it as best as anybody else does. But, yeah, even like I actually found the hotels a bit, yeah, I just thought there was a lot of people going through stuff and they're in locked up in a room every day and, yeah, that was a bit... Yeah, a bit tough at times to kind of like assist people because at the end Mm. of the day you can kind of rationalise when you've got people committing crimes and then they go in into a cell or into a jail. So in your mind you go, that was wrong, off you go. 
But when it moves to this situation, it's kind of like, oh, no, this is like the mother coming up to see the sick daughter in hospital, you know? God, it's really just new territory, isn't it? Like really not. And it's interesting because we, as you probably know from my Facebook posts, but um, we were meant to be away for three months actually just back in October. And we had actually booked into into an airport hotel for the night before we left and they absolutely refused to refund us. And I actually rang them and I said, you want us to come and stay at a hotel where people are quarantining? Like. I could even feel my privilege in that as I was saying it. But um, it was actually a bit scary. I felt a little bit scared. I don't know if I really want to go and stay there. But um, in the end. No, but you wouldn't want to even then. No. Well, apart from that, it was a runway room overlooking the airport where there were no planes going out and it was the (laughs) night before we were meant to go on our big trip and it was like you want us to come and watch no planes and (laughs) for the trip that we're now not allowed to go on (laughs) so and you're gonna go nowhere (laughs) and then go home the next day that's right I'm gonna spend a hundred dollars to not be excited oh my god you know whatever it costs yeah in Sydney and the rest but um in the end they ended up refunding us thank goodness but um yeah it's just just been so challenging for people hasn't it but look you know you you have overcome a lot and we're going to talk more about the big kahuna and all that but I know you did a presentation recently and you talked about how you've sort of overcome things and what advice do you have for other women I guess who may have experienced trauma and yeah in terms of recovering you can't really face yourself properly or in a meaningful way if you're not going to really own what's happening to you and so you know even before when I said I probably may not know the gravity of what has occurred to me but at least I know that something wasn't necessarily right in place you know well yeah I'm eating chocolate all the time and if people out there put are you okay then I'll follow up and say, no, no, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> so I am probably an active person to say, hey, look, I'm not doing okay. Mm. Have you got five minutes for a chat? Because my natural brief reflex, I don't know if that's the right word. So but my natural go-to is I actually don't like talking about my problems. Mm. Like so and many people don't. Yeah. So what I do is if I air it that there's something wrong, what I actually find is like, oh, no, no, I'm all good. And then I kind of do feel a bit better that, okay, yeah, maybe I'm not, this is not, you know, as bad as what I think it is. Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm talking about like, say, a workplace conflict that might have dragged me down a bit in my feelings or something. Mm -hmm. Not not the big stuff. With the big stuff, if if I can't find a solution, um, then as I said before, I went to a psychologist and the best thing I ever did for myself. She was an amazing therapist, psychologist. So yeah, definitely go to people. Um, my third one is nature. And I feel like when I jump in the ocean, it washes away all my problems. Mm. I mean, it definitely doesn't, but I just feel like that is the thing like jumping in the ocean. So yeah, I don't know, like I'm on Insta. So every now and then if I can grab a a picture of being grateful down at the beach, that's me. That's my being in heaven and Mm. being refreshed and just feeling cleansed, I guess, from the ocean and walking in nature. Like, So, yeah, seeing a psychologist. Mm. Um, And I suppose probably the biggest one that I have done now nearly for eight years straight is keeping a gratitude journal. 
every day I write down things in a book to of my day that I'm grateful for. Yeah, I guess this brings us sort of to the next part of uh, the interview. And I have watched you over the last eight years, actually, on Instagram with your journal. So I want you to share with our listeners where you first, I guess, heard about the uh, a gratitude, the concept of gratitude, and you know who that was and where you came across it. Yeah, sure. So I guess for the listeners, this is actually Jody and and myself, our big connection point. So for me, being an Oprah show, an Oprah fan for many years, I saw her on the show talk about keeping a gratitude journal. And basically, really all I remember is when you're grateful, more will come to be grateful for, you know. And so when you find things in your day that you're grateful for, then you can't be upset or you can't be whinging. And so just from seeing Oprah show about gratitude kind of set me off on a path back in 2012, actually, like everything was kind of like in disarray for me. Like I I wasn't settling into the city. I'd moved from Cape York to Brisbane. I just felt really, you know, off kilter. Everything didn't feel right. So I Mm -hmm. thought the way to to cope with all of this is to do a gratitude journal Mm. and I'll do one for a thousand days straight. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, it was Oprah that led me to gratitude. So what we might do is come back to actually what a gratitude practice might look like later. But um, you and I have got several very juicy stories to share with our listeners. So we might start there and then we'll come back to the gratitude practice. So I know for me through every dark moment in my life, my teenage years where um, my school was on the same street as where I lived. And so I used to bunk off school and go home and have lunch with Oprah. And throughout my eating disorder, my depression, my infertility, Oprah or one of her guests was always there like this little ray of light at at 1pm every day. So, I mean, I I remember even going through my fertility treatment, getting up, having my drugs, which we used to call shitterol because they made you feel shit. So I'd get up, have my nasal spray, I'd feel shit, I'd go back to bed and then I'd just wait to have lunch with Oprah. And I'd just moved home to Australia. So I was kind of, I think I was pretty lonely as well. And every day I just, there was just always something. And I don't know about you, but do you remember how sometimes it was repeats and I'd always get so pissed off. I mean, it was still good (laughs) to watch the repeat, but it was like, oh no, I've seen this one. But um, (laughs) what was it for you about the Oprah show and and, and Oprah that called you, I guess? Uh, I would have to say for me, it was probably the more spiritual element and those things like gratitude or authentic power or surrendering you know, so when she would move into talking about how those things served her in her life, yep. those are the things that probably as a young, you know, late teenager, young 20-something that I kind of wanted to know more about or, or at least try those things in my life. I would also have to say the overcoming stories, just people who overcame stuff. Yeah, that's that, what I love too. There were so many, like, you know, hundreds, well, thousands literally. Yeah, you know, you'd turn on the TV and you'd have a story in front of you and you're like, yeah, I've got nothing to complain about. I am going forth and I am doing that. Exactly. I think that was the same for me too. It really put that sort of sense of hope out there too, didn't it? When people overcame things, it was like, gosh, if this person's overcome that, then I can absolutely overcome whatever it is that I'm going through. For sure. They're overcoming and doing it. They've done it, yeah. Yeah. 
so I guess this leads to how we met. <laughs> and I remember us both being in, I think we were in a, a group about Oprah coming to Sydney and I kind of had this vibe that you knew something that I knew. <laughs> and but we weren't really saying anything and it was all very hush-hush. But we had both applied to be an Oprah show ultimate viewer. And what that meant was when uh, Oprah did the show where we're going to Sydney, just before that she had, um, put a call out for ultimate viewers and so you and I had both applied as well as many other people and I remember getting an email from I won't say the lady's name I don't think that email address exists anymore but it was so and so at harpo.com and I seriously nearly weed my pants I was like oh my god there is an email in my inbox from harpo <laughs> and you obviously also watched the show you'd also had an email and then they announced the Sydney show and neither of us got tickets and we hadn't heard anything about the ultimate viewer and we were so depressed (laughs) I remember (laughs) do you remember how bad we felt I I was like I had the box set of Oprah um, DVD (laughs) so when I missed out I like said to my husband I was doing cancel culture. I'm like, you know what, <laughs> throw those DVDs out. I have never watched them over again. I have dedicated my, like, adultness to this show. And <laughs> Oh, my God, it was so bad. And then we messaged each other and I said, did you apply? And then you said, did you? And I, yeah, we both applied and we were just, <laughs> and, and then, but we could not believe that we didn't even get tickets to that show because we were like, we were interviewed as, as ultimate viewers and you haven't even given us a ticket to the show. <laughs> Then tell people what happened. <laughs> well, I got chosen as an ultimate viewer. <laughs> Oprah's producers had sent up a film crew up to my work at Weeper Police Station and we had a team meeting. They pretended they were um, filming about policing in remote areas and so they'd set up in our station. And then, yeah, then the producer came out with a, a personal video to me, which was from Oprah inviting me to the Sydney show. So <laughs> just when we were talking about like the anticipation and us applying, it was kind of bringing back all that magic, you know, yeah. of that moment. And then I had to come and break it to you that, oh, my God, like. You yeah. got chosen and I didn't. And, and when you say that anticipation, I'm thinking I wasn't feeling anticipation. I was just depressed. <laughs> because we kind of like went through this depression together. Mine ended in a different way. It did. Oh. And it was hard because I really was so, so happy for you and I was so, so depressed for myself. <laughs> and so then what happened is that my other very good friend and I thought, well, we're just going to stalk her. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I live in Sydney, I, I can do that. So we actually went and we saw her at the big Botanical Gardens and then we heard online somewhere someone say, if you go and queue at the Opera House the night before, anyone who hasn't collected their tickets for the Sydney show, they will be giving them out. So we were like, I was even so depressed. I said to my friend, oh, do you know, I don't even care. I'm not going. We're not going to get them anyway. <laughs> And then she said, no, come on, we have to go, we have to go. So we went and queued up and we were like number 86 and there was 150 tickets. So my friend and I got tickets to the show. Oh, that's so good. Did you go to the morning one or the afternoon one? I was the Hugh Jackman one where he crashed coming down the thing. 
Yeah, so, um, yeah, that's the one I was at. Yeah, I saw you stand out. I was like, there she is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so we made it. We made it after all that depression. We made we it. We did. We did. And look, we're saying depression. I'm not using that term lightly. We were actually really, really down. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, really, yeah. it was disappointment, actually. Really, really bad disappointment. And so then, um, and what I'm going to do in the show notes is I'm going to put your little video in there. So if people want to go and see um, Anna's video up at the police station and when Oprah messaged her, I'm going to put that in the show notes for you. Then we stayed in touch. And then a few years later, Oprah came back to Sydney and you could buy tickets to meet her. And so clearly we both did that. And I always joke with my husband, it was the highlight of my life after my kids. So it goes like kids, (laughs) Oprah, husband. (laughs) Um, And I was one of six people to have my question answered and by Oprah. And we talked for quite some time about a guest that she said had changed the way that the Oprah show ran. And that was a lady called Rudine who had actually died from anorexia. And you, um, obviously you were in Brisbane and so you was the one where she okay so then I think that was in Brisbane wasn't it so you were sitting there watching the show and what happened (laughs) so that show that Oprah did the speaking tour what was it 2015 yeah Um, it was like a like a monologue of and then she talked about different topics and so when she came to gratitude when she talked about gratitude at the Brisbane show she said in the mic like oh I hear that there's a lady here that has um kept a gratitude journal for a thousand days straight and I was like oh my god that, that was me setting a goal for a thousand days straight like, like that's what I did and Anna please stand up and I'm like oh my god that's like me <laughs> how many people were in the audience I mean that was massive <laughs> yeah yeah I mean that would have been like um you know let's say a few thousand easy wow. so she got me to stand up and we had a talk about uh, gratitude and and what that meant but I have a really interesting backstory to this. Mm-hmm. When I decided to start my gratitude journals in 2012, my husband and I are walking through the park and there's these flowers. And he says, do you know what these flowers are called? And I said, no. And he said, they're called agapanthers. Now, I thought that that was the funniest word I've ever heard because I've never heard of the word agapanther. Okay. And I was like, that is such a funny word. And then I would like say, you're an agapantha, you're an agapantha head. And then whenever I would travel anywhere, I would t- like, and I'd see an agapantha, I would take a photo and I'd message him and go, hey, agapantha. And it just became our running joke. Aww. And so when I sent um, my husband Mark the photo, because my friend had taken a photo of me talking to Oprah at the Brisbane show. Mm-hmm. On the big screen behind Oprah was a picture of big flowers. I remember they were too. Wow. So that's like my quirky little story about that is so funny that the year I started and that was no, no one ever knew that story. That was just like my husband and my joke. Wow. And then surreal little moment of when they popped up. Yeah. And then I think you then went Look, because of the way this year's gone, I think you were just, was that the trip when you came back for your sister? You'd been overseas to meet Oprah then or was that a different trip? Basically, they say when you're grateful, more comes to be grateful. So last Mm -hmm. year I won a $20,000 travel voucher. Oh, no way, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, because I think it was from being grateful. And so this is the funny thing about following your instincts. So Mm. I said to my husband, you know what, let's go to Europe in December. So off we went and then that's why I came back. And then I said, I want to go to America in 
March, uh, Oprah's daughter is speaking to us. I might as well just jump on and jump in that. And anyway, my husband says to me, what's the rush? We don't need to spend the travel voucher now. We've got two, three years. Let's oh, do yes, it. Oh, yes, you do. <laughs> Whereas so I won the voucher in April. It was half spent by December and the other half in oh, March. Gosh. And, you know, had we had not gone, I don't, we would have probably lost that $20,000 voucher. How's that for? Well, crazy? you just like, got in March because I think, I can't remember whether we were recording or not when I said that earlier, but the 11th of March, I flew to North Carolina for some somatic training and leaving here and getting there, the pandemic was declared. So you must have just got back yep. in time. Yeah, we did. We came back on Friday and then the Prime Minister said that you had to self-quarantine for 14 days on the Monday and then pretty much was was banning travel, like as in no more international travel allowed, like around that time. But we had come back in the country Friday and then they did the no travel, uh, no quarantine. Well, I left the Wednesday, so it was the same time. That's why I didn't really get Uh, to talk to you about. And so what happened? So you met Oprah for a third time. Yeah, well, you know, considering I didn't have to spend any money on the travel, mm-hmm. I thought, well, why not? You know, this mm-hmm. may be the last time in my life that I ever get to see Oprah, you know, this person that has inspired me so much in person. And so that was on March 8th, I think, or 9th. Mm-hmm. And that was her last show. And I met a friend from Perth over there in, in Denver and um, mm. a friend from Melbourne. And yeah, like we just went to the Oprah show and had one last hurrah. And thank you very much, Oprah, for all the, all the memories and the inspiration and for mm. being a part of making us who we are today. Oh, that's so amazing. We joke and we're laughing and it's, you know, it's a great story to tell. And, but what has she meant to you? I mean, you know, we're talking about people having role models. And I think in this world at the moment where there's so much crazy going on, we really need more people like her, I think. What has she meant to you? I probably would go back to what I was saying, like some of the stories that I loved. And I would say that she, to me, was one of the people that was the ultimate overcomer yeah you know regardless of her like you know first story of rejection by her mother and then going to live with her grandmother and then you know extreme poverty and then getting kicked out go live with her father falls pregnant and then a black woman in America the challenges of being on tv and so here we have this story of this this black woman and I'm a black woman and so it was kind of like maybe resonating on that level but then resonating on the being inspired I guess by the fact that she's an overcomer and even though she's an overcomer there's this person that still is quite grounded in her spirituality and has a level of humility and grace and and I've met people that have worked for her and they all say that she is Mm -hmm. what you see is what you get and Mm -hmm. um and it was she was an amazing person to even work for I found too, like a lot of people said to me, so what was she actually like? And I know when we, um, so basically when you bought a VIP ticket, there was about a hundred or 200 people and we were all sort of just sitting there waiting and she was only actually meant to come out for 15 minutes to half an hour or something. She ended up spending over an hour. And to me, when she talked to you, it wasn't like, oh, you've someone who's bought a ticket and I need to be nice to you or whatever. She was really, really genuine and really saw people. And, you know, she said to me, what do you do? And I said, I work with people with eating disorders. And 
we were on stage and she grabbed my hands and she gave me a high 10, you know, the Oprah high 10. And she yeah. said, well done you, well done you. That's just wonderful. And you could see that she really meant it. Yeah. And I just love that. And I thought this is someone who actually walks the talk, you know, she's not just like that for the cameras. Totally. And it's almost like there's a part of her that completely is like grateful, but remembers that it's because of us that she's there. Yeah. Because of our being a fan and, Mm. you know, whatever, and that we tuned in, that she, you know, has that big success, but it's like she never forgot that. You know how you like have those stars that are like, oh, I think my fans, but there are people that genuinely do appreciate them. And I think that to me was her, like the fact that, you know, you dressed up or you paid money for a ticket. She's like, wow, people did that for me. Well, yeah. yeah. And like people like us, I mean, I I remember saying to my husband, I want to go to Harpo Studios and he had a training course on that week, I think. And so um, off I went on my own to Harpo Studios and went and sat in her chair. And, oh, uh, cool. And, and then we went and met uh, in New York. So he came a couple of days later. But, um, you know, people did that. People went from all over the world to just have a little piece of that, I guess. So, yeah, I yeah, just feel so grateful. Cool. And I, I guess it brings us back to the topic of gratitude. And she says that the single greatest thing you can do to change your life today would be to start feeling grateful for what you have right now. We've been talking about gratitude, but I guess from your perspective, what is gratitude? To me, the way that I feel about gratitude is that it allows me to remember what is good in the world. It allows me to always see it. To me, it's just this feeling of being grateful to be alive, being grateful for the people in my life, being grateful for what is here in front of me. It's like an experience. That's how I could, you know, like when you laugh and that's an experience. Yep. To me, keeping my journals and having gratitude at the forefront of my mind is this experience. It's this experience that I get to hold as I walk through my life. You can talk about the, the benefits personally or just in general, but what do you think the benefits of having a gratitude practice are? I think for me it has been the fact that maybe it does um, even, and, you know, maybe there's some science behind it or theory behind it, but, like, I don't have to necessarily hold on to things you know, if something went bad, I can just go, oh, well, I'm, I've still got all these other things that I'm grateful for if something went bad in my day. But also, like Oprah also talked about, you know, if you have a challenge in your life, if you have a conflict in your life, to be grateful for it because it's here to teach you something. It's just like this reframing that you can put on things to go, you know what, I didn't like that. I didn't like how it felt. I didn't like how they made me feel. But what am I grateful for out of it? Oh, I'm grateful that and I now know I can't trust them or I'm grateful that um, I learned that I need to stand up for myself more, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's just like this experience, but I guess maybe it's a mindset. Mm. And I think what you're saying is really important. And I guess I just want to say it's not about being all Pollyanna and everything is toxic positivity, we call it. And it is about also when things do happen that aren't great, it's not about being in denial about those things either, but it's about feeling the feelings around anything that's painful. And then what is seeking to emerge out of this crisis, I guess, Yeah, you know what, 100%. And just kicking off the year with a death in my family. So I don't sit there and say, oh, you know, I'm going to pretend to be happy or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, I can sit there and go, you know, my work friend sent me a bunch of flowers. Isn't that really beautiful Mm -hmm. that they took time to do that? Or, you know, my cousins brought over food for us. So it was like acknowledgement. And I guess it even goes back to when we were talking about like Oprah seeing you and and she Mm -hmm. feels all, you know, she's right there. It's like, just acknowledging that 
life can be rubbish and it can be wonderful, but you can always still be grateful for things. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so for anyone listening, I mean, this podcast is is aimed at people with trauma, disordered eating, addiction, feeling unworthy. Well, I guess what are some of the ways that they might be able to practice gratitude? I mean, I know you keep a journal. Do you, I think you said something earlier about noticing the flowers. I think that's even practicing gratitude, isn't it? I think so. I think because when you write the things, like I set myself a target of 10 things a day even if you did too. But what that does is, you know, I'm walking along and going, oh, my God, look at those red flowers. Mm-hmm. So it creeps into your everyday thinking because mm-hmm. you've got to find the things, you've got to write them down. The other thing that I do is I actually write my husband's name every day. And I actually, even as a person married in a relationship, I actually feel like it makes me really appreciate him more. Because he'll be doing something, and I'm like, "Geez, I'm really grateful he's did that. He's done that. Wow, you know, that's I'm really great. grateful for him. I'm grateful he's gone to the shop and got the the milk for the next few days. You know, mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. so I even catch myself out feeling thankful. And you also keep a uh, Instagram page where you put the sort of gratitude in photos too, don't you? Um, yeah. I so last year I did a photo a day, uh-huh. um, every day of something I was grateful for. You know, whether that's like. TV or ice cream or uh, going to <laughs> the, the beach. Good things. <laughs> yeah. So this year I was going to do it, but I kind of got derailed, obviously, which mm-hmm. is how my year started. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like you're just building a little photo album for yourself of things. And then when you scroll back, it's like, oh, yeah, that's the day that I went and had lunch with such and such. So it's more of having a, my own little photo journal diary type thing. And is that open to the public to see or is it private? Yeah, it is open to the public. And what's really interesting is even in a workplace like the police, mm-hmm. I have had people on the side contact me and talk to me about doing journals and how they have just learned something from me oh, um, wow. to do it. So, yeah, so it is, it is open and I just like that as a, a little record of these little moments. You are more than welcome to share your handle if you want to. It's Gratitude Sister, you know, um, on Insta, I'm Gratitude Sister. Okay. <laughs> so sort of all I could think of with the word gratitude and thought, well, everybody is my sister or they can be my brothers in gratitude. We're sort of coming to an end and most people who come on this podcast come to sell their book or their practice or whatever else and and as well, obviously, to impart their knowledge and to support women who are listening. You have nothing to sell. You're not here to promote yourself or anyone else. So I I guess I just want to say thank you so much for coming and on behalf of our listeners for showing up in your vulnerability and for educating us, particularly around Black Lives Matters. And I guess I'm not sure if you read or not, but I asked you if there was a charity or something that you support, particularly Indigenous or otherwise, so that we can send our listeners there so that they can perhaps make a donation on your behalf. There is a women's centre in Maningrida, Northern Territory, Babara's Women's Centre. They're an art centre. Um, so, yeah, rather than checking out my Instagram, maybe take a few minutes to go and look at their webpage and it's a social enterprise. It's a group of women up in the Northern Territory in an Aboriginal community that um, do their art on materials and they screen print and um, you can buy them online and 
like to me, if 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 somebody goes in, goes in that direction and, and supports vulnerable women in in these remote indigenous communities, I think that would be fantastic. That's fantastic. And what we'll do is I will get you to send through the website for that, and I will put that into the show notes. So. Thank you so much for coming on the show and educating people about what you do and where you've come from and also obviously catching up about Oprah. <laughs> it's always, always fun. So, Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for your time and letting, you know, letting the story of gratitude get spread out there. So thank you. This is episode 17. For the show notes, go to thesoulcenter.online, Soul Sessions 17, When We Met Oprah. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.